You're listening to the Bible Brush Up Podcast, and today we are continuing our venture through the book of Exodus, and I want to stop and talk about Exodus chapter 31 and 32 and a few other things, uh, because I think as we look at these chapters and some of the surrounding material, we begin to see glimpses of what we understand in the New Testament to be called spiritual warfare. And that's the idea that where God is working, Satan likes to step in and interrupt or try to interrupt God's plan. And uh, so anytime there's something good that's occurring in the world, something that's godly where people are pursuing God, you'll often find Satan putting up a counter attack to disrupt God's good redeeming work. Um, that's exactly what we see in the Garden of Eden. God has made something good and precious, and Satan comes in and he wreaks havoc on that good and perfect environment. Uh, we see this in the church. Um, God is doing something great. He is using his word to transform lives, but then Satan comes in and he tries to disrupt by um, bringing disunity and causing people to bicker and fight over things that they shouldn't. And uh, this becomes a, a scar and a stain on the church often. And many people have left the faith because of those broken relationships within the church itself. And so Satan comes in and he disrupts God's work in the church and in other uh, endeavors. We could probably sit here and talk about various places where God has done something good and Satan comes and tries to destroy that. Uh, I've often told people and just had this conversation a couple of days ago that around Easter time, it seems there's always weird stuff that goes on um, because at Easter, many people come in and they sit down and they're ready to listen to the word of God. And maybe they don't come any other time of year, but they're willing to come on that day. So it's an opportunity for the word of God to speak into their lives. Um, but then there's always crazy that comes along with it. And I can only chalk that up to being a counterattack by Satan. And, uh, but this isn't just a New Testament phenomenon. We obviously see that in the Garden of Eden, but it doesn't stop there, and it doesn't pause until the New Testament occurs. Uh, but I think we see this even in Sinai. God has led the Israelites out of Egypt. They're now on their way to being their own people. They're heading towards the Promised Land. God has fulfilled his promises to Abraham that he would preserve people like he did through Joseph, that he would preserve their land like he's doing through Moses, and they are going to the fulfillment of these promises made to Abraham under the Abrahamic covenant. And God gives Moses the uh, Ten Commandments, and he tells them what they need to do, how they need to build the tabernacle, and all this stuff. And so God is really working in the lives of these people. But after he gives them these commands, in chapter 31, it says this, The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, from the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with the ability and intelligence and knowledge and all craftsmanship, daddy, daddy, daddy. Okay, and so he has chosen this man, and he goes on to name uh, other people that will be involved in the process too. And God has filled them with his Spirit for a particular task, for a, a work. And that work is the crafting of the tabernacle and the instruments and furnishings that will go in the tabernacle. And he has given him this supernatural knowledge from on high to craft these things and to be able to make these 
the gold and silver ornaments they have into the furnishings that they will use for their worship of Yahweh. And so this is good. This is God continuing this good work. And that's what happens in chapter 31. But right after this chapter, we get to chapter 32, and the people are down the mountain on their own, realizing that Moses has been gone for some time. They don't know where he's at. They don't know if he's coming back. And so they want gods. And Moses has been the representation of Yahweh to the people. And now he's out of the picture. And so they immediately revert back to their old ways. They've been in Egypt for so long that it's second nature for them to worship gods like Baal, who this calf that they make out of gold represents. And so while God is doing something good up on the mountain, by speaking directly to Moses and giving his perfect law. And while God is also doing something good down at the bottom of the mountain, down in the valley with the people of God, by putting his spirit on certain individuals. And when you read chapter 31, God's already done this. He's already put his spirit on these people. So there are people in the midst of this larger group that already have the spirit of God and they're already being moved and burdened to make these furnishings out of gold and silver. And all of a sudden, Satan tempts the people to use their gold and silver in a different way. And so they bring their gold and silver and all their precious jewels to Aaron, and they end up making the idol um, to Baal. And so they go back to their Egyptian gods rather than serving Yahweh. And uh, so we see the spiritual warfare going on. God is working both, not just on the mountain. It's not like he's up on the mountain and the people are left to themselves, but God is working on the mountain and in the people, and still Satan comes to disrupt the plan. And so there is a major setback, and because of this, Moses makes them melt down the calf and drink the water that the gold was put into, and then he also instructs them to uh, lead in some disciplinary action by killing some of the people that were primarily involved in this rebellion. And so I just want you to see that and to be thinking about how Satan is trying to disrupt God's plan throughout the remainder of our reading in the Torah. And we'll definitely make those connections and correlations to our New Testament readings that we do uh, in the future as we uh, go back through the New Testament at some point. We're reading through and we see the talk about spiritual warfare. We see uh, Satan trying to disrupt the plans of the church and disrupt uh, the plan of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Um, all of this is just a continuation of what was started in Genesis. Uh, the next thing I like to look at in chapter 33, so we went 31, 32, now we're looking at 33, is there's a purpose statement there and there's a, a really a, a good explanation of what is happening in this section of the Torah. In verse 16, it says this, Moses has now gone back up the mountain. He's talking to God again after he's already broken the Ten Commandments on the ground after seeing this golden calf and seeing people worshiping this false god. And Moses, when he's talking to God, says this, For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct? I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. You see, as we've walked with Moses and the Israelites, one of the things that God is doing with them is making them distinct. You may have asked yourself, why is God changing their months? Like They had months already. The Egyptians had months. But now they're getting a new calendar. 
not only are they getting a new calendar, but now God is starting to say, uh, set up different festivals and celebrations. They're going to, every year, celebrate the Passover. Every year, the Feast of Ingathering. Every year, the Day of Atonement. Every year, you know, they've got these festivals that God is coming up with that are going to be unique to the Israelite people that are tied not only to their own history, but to Yahweh himself. Much of their celebration is a celebration of Yahweh and what he's doing. So in, in that sense, they're becoming very distinct, and that is necessary to make them a people because they had really been absorbed into Egypt, and their identity was somewhat lost as they spent hundreds of years in the land of Egypt as simply shepherds of Egypt and slaves of Egypt. And so it would have been easy for these generations that had come about to have lost sight of the Abrahamic covenant, to have lost sight of who their descendants were and what their calling was. And God is having to reinstitute and re revamp these uh, notions that they are a unique people that have been called out of these other people groups in the world. And that's very evident by the fact that they instinctively return back to the worship of Baal. They go back to worshiping what Egypt worshiped because deep down inside, they still feel like they're Egyptians and God is fighting against that urge and saying, no, you are different and distinct. And Moses recognizes that. He understands that. But he also understands that their distinctness is not tied up only in festivals, them and of themselves do not make them distinct. What makes them really distinct is that God goes with them. He is with them. Yahweh is in their midst. And that's why the tabernacle was so important for them, because that was Yahweh's presence. He was going to be there with them, going with them. And as long as he was there with them, they would be distinct. Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct? I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. Now, of course, all the things that they were called on to do, the Ten Commandments and the festivals and uh, keeping the Passover and circumcision, all those things certainly made them distinct. But the reason it made them distinct is because those were the things that they were required to do for God's presence to remain with them. If they did not do those things, they were cut off from the people of God, meaning they were no longer in God's presence because they were no longer a part of that people. And if the people as a whole reject all of these uh, commandments and these principles, then God will forsake the people, as we see later on uh, outside of the Torah when they are taken into Babylonian captivity. The iniquity and the sin of the people becomes so overwhelming amongst the masses that there's just no place for Yahweh in their midst and therefore they get taken away. They get absorbed into the people of Babylon and they end up absorbing their customs and their culture and their language and once again they start to lose their identity. But their distinctness is predicated upon their commitment and devotion to Yahweh and that devotion is seen and lived out in the obedience to the commands and to these various festivals and such that they observe. Um, the final thing I want to talk about today is tied to this, uh, and it's God's presence as it relates to the idea of the cherubim. 
you may have, have as you've read through these the last several chapters, the word cherubim has popped up several times, repeatedly. And cherubim, as you probably already know, is a type of angelic being. And there's not a lot of um, definitive information that we can nail down regarding the cherubim. Um, there's a lot of speculation. People make some guesses. Some people have said these are the greatest of the angelic beings, and they kind of rank them as cherubim, and then seraphim, and then just your ordinary angel. And that may be true. It may not be. It's hard to really nail that down. Some of the more prevalent angels that we have names for, like Michael, and Gabriel. It doesn't really tell us whether or not they were cherubim or seraphim, um, but nonetheless, cherubim are important in the early Torah, and they seem to be a relevant feature with God's presence throughout the Old Testament and even into the New. And we see this in the earliest episode of the Torah when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. They were being uh, blockade, blockaded by cherubim. They were kept out of the garden through cherubim with flaming swords. They were set on the outside, and they were guarding the tree of life so that sinners could not partake of the tree of life and live forever. The tree of life was meant to be eaten by those in perfect communion with God who were going to reside in his presence. It's something that we will get to partake of in the new heaven and new earth in our glorified bodies once sin has been dealt with once and for all. But in this earliest episode, they do not get to partake of it because the cherubim are guarding it. They're guarding God's presence. They're guarding God's holy place. Um, they're guarding what was lost. And that image is already seared in the minds of those who are students of the Old Testament. And so now we get to this restoration of Eden, as I've talked about, and God is creating imagery of Eden in the tabernacle, in the almond blossoms that are on the lampstand that represent the tree of life. And, and um, much of what was in Eden, we see some symbolisms, and even the, the breast piece of Aaron and the stones that were found in Eden are on his breast piece. These reminders of Eden come with another reminder that that was lost. Those things were lost because of sin. And now cherubim are being stitched into the fabric of the curtains. And cherubim are being hammered out in gold to sit in the holy place. And God is going to be riding on the cherubim. He sits on the cherubim. And so we see the, him sitting on the cherubim in the holy of holies, in the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, within the holy place of the tabernacle. Later on in the Old Testament, in the book of Ezekiel, we have images of God riding on the cherubim. And basically, these cherubim are leaned over, and God is sitting on their backs, and they create a living throne. It's not a, a dead throne. It's a living throne. Living, powerful, angelic beings make the footstool, make the, the throne of God Almighty, and he rides upon them. And this... Uh, this idea of this living throne just shows us the power and the might and the fact that we serve a living God um, that's much different and distinct from the rest of the world. But these 
these guardian angels, we might call them, are stitched into the fabric that separate the most holy place from the holy place. Within the holy place, the first section of the uh, covered, enclosed room of the tabernacle, you would walk in and there would be the lampstand and there would be the incense altar and there would be the table of showbread. And some of the priests could go in there and they would minister. But only once a year could the high priest go in beyond the curtain where the cherubim were. And so if anybody tried to go in there, they died. And that's that reminder that the cherubim are warning you. It's a warning. God is in here. And you are a sinner. You cannot come. Just like they were parked outside of the Garden of Eden and telling Adam and Eve, you cannot come in. And so when Israel would march off into battle, when they would be uh, wandering through the wilderness, the priest would be carrying the Ark of the Covenant out front. And so the enemies of God's people, when they were watching the people heading towards them, they would see these cherubim. And they would be a reminder that if God is with these people, they are indeed distinct and they indeed will win the battle. And so God would go before them and he would fight their battles for them as he promised. And that is one of the reasons they have victory and enter into the promised land. Uh, but it is a reminder that God is holy and we as sinners need to be uh, in reverence and in holy fear of who God is, knowing that we are sinful. But God's presence with us makes us distinct. And so we want to honor God's presence. We want to glorify him in all we do. And we'll pick this up next time on the Bible Brush Up Podcast.